Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is the Old Testament book of Jonah and the prophet for which it is named. I t- propose this to dad partly because it's just so delightful. It is a wonderful little book. It's short. It's the only book I've read in its entirety in Hebrew, though a very long time ago, and I don't remember a lick of it anymore. But it's somehow in such a short um, number of chapters and in this rather comical folktale format that ends practically with a punchline, it somehow manages to compress so much of Hebrew Old Testament theology and convictions about God. It's just wonderful. It sure is, Sarah. And it's a, a, a wonderful example of how the Bible is theological. And what I mean by that is not that theology is a topic within the Bible, but that the narratives that the people is people of God, Israel, created, that was their form of theologizing. They theologized by telling stories. And the story of Jonah that we're going to talk about today is an example of how Hebrew uh, uh, theologians used narrative in order to pose truly interesting questions about the nature of prophecy, about the exclusiveness of the covenant with Israel, and uh, even, as I want to talk about towards the end, about the immutable mutability of God, to use a very paradoxical expression that comes from uh, the Episcopalian theologian Catherine Zonderegger. Hmm. Yes, th- that is great. And I've said before, as big a fan as I am of doctrine and dogma, there is something very primal about the storytelling medium for conveying accurately about God, because in the story you get action and history and relationality all enacted in a way that's, you know, as, as I've heard another um, story analyst say, a story is the oldest human psychotechnology. And so that's the reason why it appeals to us best. It is actually Actually how we think. A narrative is how human beings think. And other forms of rationality are derivative from it, sometimes problematic. That's why an, uh, an empirical approach like science can be helpful. But nevertheless, narrative is always going to speak to us most truthfully and most profoundly, because that's simply how our, our brains are constructed. And let me just point out in addition, uh, since this book of the Bible was part of the terrible controversy in the 1970s that split the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod when the fundamentalist turn, fundamentalists who took over the Synod insisted that the book of Jonah must be interpreted as literal history. Why? Because Jesus referred to it and uh, as Jonah spent three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man. And if Jonah is not real history, well, then neither is Jesus's death and resurrection real history. I didn't realize that was the specific reason why it had to be literally true. Huh. Yeah, so if I, if I refer to something from, uh, from uh, the uh, tale of two cities uh, or... If I, if I refer to Macbeth or Hamlet, uh, if I make a literary allusion, 
My point, the truth I'm expressing, depends upon whether or not Macbeth, Hamlet, and, and Dickens' story of the French Revolution are literally true. This is just no. wooden-minded literalism. Yeah, uh, yeah. Huh. That's and, really and, curious. And you know, Sarah, what the price of that is, is that you're so, de- when you read Jonah, you're so desperate to establish its historicity that you overlook the terseness of the narrative and all the interesting gaps it leaves for the reader's hearers to fill in with their own imagination as they try to probe and understand and get into the theological problems that are being exposed. Well, and also, internal to the text is absolutely no concern for the plausibility of the fish story. You know, as with all good stories, you suspend your disbelief, (laughs) but the right kind of disbelief, in order to just go along with what the story is telling you and and the way in which it tells you. Uh, The book of Jonah doesn't care about the reality of the fish or the whale or how big it is or whether or not, you know, you could survive three days in digestive juices in a big, you know, (laughs) seagoing creature's stomach. (laughs) So, huh. Yeah, well, good. I, I, we can set that aside. And but I, I think the the most significant point here is the tremendous loss of Jonah's own theology, if that becomes the the focus of attention. And also, I'll just say I, I reviewed um Luther's commentary on Jonah, which um, um, you know, I, I'd read before and, and just looked over my notes. But of course, you know, Luther, of course, believes it's literally true because that's a time and place that he lives in. But he's also utterly uninterested in any of the plausibility questions. And when he refers to um, Christ's reference to Jonah, he says very insistently, it's not an allegory, it's just an illustrative comparison. So for him, there there's no factual linkage that's necessary there. It's simply the fact that Christ is using it to illuminate the meaning of what he's doing. The, uh, the facticity is not at issue. Very good. And when we get to that, I'll have a comment about Luther's creative misreading of chapter two. But let's go ahead, Sarah. Why don't you take us through, take us through the, uh, the book? Okay. Well, I thought we would we'd kind of, since it's so short, we'd uh, un- unpack it chapter by chapter. There's just four chapters to it. So I'll summarize as we go and then we can talk. So the first chapter is um, the most famous one, the Sunday school one, which is that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, get up, I want you to go to Nineveh and uh, proclaim against that great city and its evil deeds. And um, just for the fun of it, I looked on Google Maps and put in from um, Jerusalem to, you know, wherever it is. I think it's in modern day Iraq where Nineveh is presumed to be. And I put on like the go by foot function and you would have to walk um, 24-7 for 10 days straight. And that's assuming you didn't stop to, you know, rest or recover from the, the desert heat or you weren't slowed down going over mountains or across rivers. So it's a long ways to Nineveh, um, just like it's a long <laughs> way to Tipperary. So that it was quite an undertaking that um, Jonah would have to take. Plus, of course, it is Gentile territory. They know nothing of the Lord God of Israel there. So Jonah's reaction is, no way, I'm getting on a boat for Tarshish. Nobody knows where Tarshish is. It seems to be more like um, a fairy tale city of the, uh, basically meaning as far away as possible and to the west, not to the east. 
So Jonah heads out in this boat headed west towards Tarshish, and then a terrible storm comes. Jonah is asleep in the boat, actually, again, like Jesus would be many, many centuries later. And the other mariners wake him up in outrage that he's sleeping and not praying to his god, a little g-god, we'd call it, um, who maybe can help them. But um, the storm just gets worse, so they cast lots. The lot falls on Jonah. They demand to know, who are you? Where are you from? Why is the lot fallen on you? And Jonah makes uh, what I can only imagine is a very reluctant uh, confession of faith. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And uh, that, that is a particularly comical confession under the circumstances, <laughs> since the sea is raging against them and they are very far from dry land right now. And Jonah's going to get a bigger taste of the sea very soon. So um, anyway, so then the mariners absolutely panic and they realize that they are coping with a severe, severely disobedient person. And even though they may not know the Lord as the only God, they certainly know what it's like to um, piss off a God. And this is bad news for all of them. So. Uh, Jonah suggests, you should probably just throw me overboard. And interestingly, these mariners are uh, are better Hebrews (laughs) than Jonah is and more attentive to the law of God because they do not want to be guilty of murder. And they throw the cargo overboard, hoping that that will cause them to survive. But Jonah's like, no, really, you're going to have to throw me over. So before they do it, they pray actually to the Lord God of Israel, please do not punish us for throwing Jonah overboard. This seems to be what you want. And that's the only reason we're doing it. Then they chuck Jonah over. (laughs) Immediately, the sea calms down. And as a result, these, um, you know, Gentile pagan mariners feared the Lord exceedingly. And they made a sacrifice to him right there on the boat and made vows to him. And then the chapter concludes with, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What a great, what a great little story, huh? Let's just, uh, let me make just a few observations about it, right? Uh, The uh, text tells us in verse 3 that as he got into the boat to Tarshish, he was fleeing the presence of the Lord. That's a very interesting comment, isn't it? Because uh, later on in his confession that you already quoted, Uh, the Lord is the God of heaven and earth who made the sea and the dry land. The Lord is not a local deity whose presence can be fled from, is he? But Jonah, in his uh, anxiety about uh, what will happen to him if he goes to Nineveh, uh, actually thinks he can flee from the presence of the Lord. So that's interesting, isn't it? And then it's also interesting that this idea that he was fleeing from the presence of the, that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord uh, uh, is repeated in verse 10. So here you have this very paradoxical thing that Jonah thinks he, he treats the, the Lord, the God who made heaven and earth, as if he were a local deity whose presence could be fled. But in fact, uh, uh, the Lord has pursued him onto the ocean and caused this great storm to come up so that he is singled out as the culprit and so forth. And then, as you so nicely pointed out, uh, the uh, the pagan uh, sailors 
uh, in the course of the story, become confessors uh, of the one true God, the Lord, the God of Israel. Well, the comedy of the whole story is that pretty much everyone is better at obeying and worshiping the Lord God of Israel than Jonah. He's like absolutely the worst. <laughs> you know, the, these sailors don't even know the Lord, and yet they treat him with greater respect and honor and worshipfulness than Jonah does. So, And we'll see that happen again in chapter three with the Ninevites. So that that's clearly one of the uh, the narrative through lines of this story is, you know, who, who is a, a true and proper worshiper of the Lord? and how. And who was a true and proper prophet? I think one of the interesting questions to raise about this, which we can return to later, is whether the author of this little tale is conducting a polemic against certain, certain examples of Israelite prophecy or certain representatives of Israelite prophecy. Uh, in any case, it's a kind of, as you said, a satirical critique uh, of a prophet who, uh, a reluctant prophet who prophesies in spite of himself in the end. Well, do you think that's more likely the institutional prophets that get associated with the king's courts later in Israel's story? Or would it be more like a commentary on Jeremiah, who's a famously reluctant and crabby prophet? I, th- I think in Second Kings, there is a Jonah, uh, the pro- a court prophet, who prophesies uh, to the king of Israel that his kingdom will be expanded when in fact it's going to be destroyed by the Assyrians in short order. So you have to wonder whether uh, the butt of the joke, the, the object <laughs> of the satire, is this uh, court prophet uh, who prophesied uh, happy, happy things to the uh, uh, king of the northern the northern kingdom the kingdom of Israel hmm so he's a this uh possible Jonah is a yes man to the the Israelite constituency and now in in our story here he's a no man to the Gentiles and in both cases he's wrong that is pretty funny Right. One thing I noticed, um, I I'd actually did a preaching series on these. My church was closed down again in May, so I had to record my sermon. So I just decided to do four Sundays on the four chapters of Jonah. And um, I thought I was I was very original, or as if you can be in biblical interpretation. But in preaching, the the basic theme was uh, in each chapter Jonah undergoes a death. You know, the series is the four deaths of Jonah. Then when I was looking over Luther's comment. Terry, last night I came across a passage where he says, poor Jonah has to die many deaths. And I was like, I knew it. I should have guessed. <laughs> that was undoubtedly you where I got it up the from idea Luther. from. <laughs> <laughs> nearly every other so-called original idea I've ever had. And if not Luther, then you. But anyway, but I, I think it actually is, is a very good interpretive of key to the book because the the first death Jonah suffers is is the loss of his life. I mean, we don't we don't get any of the background story, but he's obviously an Israelite. His father is named in his prayer that we'll get to in the next chapter. He talks about going to the temple and offering prayers and sacrifices. Like he's got a good life, and this is again so much of the the Old Testament and not an inconsiderable amount of the New Testament story too. Is that there you are having a nice life, and then just God comes along and ruins it and says, "Nope, get up, go. I need you to do this." And um, you know, Jonah's life is is 
is wrecked anyway, so he just decides to go west instead of east. But the first, you know, massive death he suffers through this chapter is the loss of his comfortable life when the word of the Lord is addressed directly to him. And that has obviously such apt metaphorical application for all of us. I hardly need to say more on that point. That's for sure. And, you know, I think over the years I've observed how a significant number of young people I've known or taught or mentored, you know, they perceive the call to the ministry, uh, but they also therewith perceive what a sacrifice, what a, what a death to the normal so-called ordinary life that they projected for themselves that would involve. Uh, and I think that uh, that phenomena that when you're called, especially to special ministry, um, but though I think, you know, of course we would say with the priesthood of all believers, all Christians are called uh, uh, to minister Christ uh, to the neighbor, if not uh, through the word and the sacraments. Uh, there is a sacrifice of your ordinary existence in some respects for everyone who's involved by baptism uh, into the calling to uh, uh, to live a new life in Christ. Yeah, that that's very true, and and resisted at all levels, um, clergy as, as well as laity. But it, the maybe the small comfort here is this is hardly a new reaction to the word of the Lord breaking into one's life. Yep, it's the same old story. Go ahead, let's go on. What's the second death? Well, so the, I mean the the um, chapter one ends leading us into the second death of Jonah, which is chapter two, which is Jonah actually dwelling in the belly of the big fish. I'm just gonna say whale because I like whale better. It sounds and we obviously don't care. So anyway, so Jonah prays to the Lord from the belly of the fish. This um, wonderful, it's a psalm really, and it goes through this arc from the you know his call. He begins, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he. He answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried and you heard my voice. And it's very interesting. I'll, I'll, I think you have a lot to say about this here, but he talks about how the Lord did it to him. <laughs> like he's, he's not um, even fully blaming himself. He's giving the Lord credit for being the one who sent him down to the bottom. And then he is saying that I am praying out of the bottom to you. And amazingly enough, you hear me. And the, the, the conclusion from this um, descent and reascent of a prayer is that salvation belongs to the Lord. And again, hilariously, the confession that salvation belongs to the Lord alone results in the fish having a massive vomiting. <laughs> and Jonah is ejected, <laughs> flies through the air, and thuds onto the beach. <laughs> so that's the second death, but it has a resurrection following it, right? Right, right. Well, let me talk here about Luther's creative misreading of chapter 2. Now, most of the church fathers before Luther, I think, probably read the text a little bit more carefully. Because if you read the psalm of thanksgiving in chapter 2 carefully, uh, Jonah is saying that you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me, the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. Um, 
you brought up and then you brought up my life from the pit o lord my god as my life was ebbing away i remembered the lord and my prayer came to you now what's interesting is that the church fathers said the big fish the whale is sent by the lord to save jonah it's a the whale is a savior mm. because he's mm. drowning He's going down to Sheol, he's going down to the pit, he's going down to death, but he's rescued by the whale, by the big fish, even though he has to spend three days and three nights in its belly, right? But nevertheless, mm-hmm. the, the whale is figured as a savior. Right. You can survive three days, presumably, inside of a fish's stomach cavity, but you definitely cannot survive even five minutes under the ocean. Exactly. That's That's how the church fathers read it. Uh, according to uh, um, Johann Anselm Steiger, who wrote a wonderful oh, yeah. little book book about this, uh, Jonas Propheta, according to Steiger, um, Luther reads the the belly of the whale as a figure of hell, that Jonah has been cast into the belly of the beast, not as a savior, but as a punishment, as a destruction, as, as a figure of hell. And so the whale is not a savior for Luther. The whale is a devourer. And it's therefore, this kind of accentuates the idea that Jonah prays, calls out to the Lord from the place where God is not, from the one true place where God is not present. That is to say, in hell, in Hades, however you want to, Sheol, however we want to figure that. That's Luther's point. His creative misreading, I think, of the chapter is that paradoxically, Jonah cries out to the Lord in the place where the Lord is not, where the Lord's presence is not at all. That's what death, Sheol, Hades, hell figures. And nevertheless, the Lord hears him and answers his response, answers in response. So that I just wanted to mention, that's Luther's kind of creative misreading of the text. Let let me say it in Luther's defense here that you only know after the fact that the whale could be the savior because while Jonah is in it and while we are in it with Jonah, there's no reason to think that actually the whale has saved him. Like it's instead of a fast death by drowning, it's going to be a slow death by digestion. So if you're, if, if you're staying with the protagonist's view of things, I don't think it's implausible to read being inside the belly of the whale as being indeed in hell. And, you know, should hell have any consciousness to it, then awareness of your situation and how dire and horrible and long lasting it is that I think that would be a, a perfectly good image of, of what we're talking about here. Yeah, to be sure, it's a, it's a very creative misreading, I would say, <laughs> and, and a theologically attractive one, uh, because it it has to do with the, the line in the creed, he descended into the realm of the dead, he descended into hell. Uh, there's two different Latin words that are almost identical that could be translated one or the other way. Uh, but here, you know, is the descent into hell the nadir of Christ's humiliation and suffering? Or is the descent into hell the beginning of his victory? Or is it both? You know, and I, you know, I, I always like the yes, it's both 
but go ahead, Sarah. But let's move along here. Well, I, I just wanted to say that when I, I preached on this, you know, the, the whole point of, of Jonah going into the whale, again, you know, obviously channeling Luther here, I said, you know, so why would Jesus compare himself to Jonah if the reason Jonah ends up in the whale is explicitly his disobedience? I mean, it's interesting then that Jesus compares himself to such a lousy, disobedient, hostile, anti-God prophet. And what I said is the reason why is much like in Jesus' baptism, it's because Jesus puts himself where the sinners are and where the forsaken are and, you know, the, the damned and deliberately aligns himself and actually goes to the place where people are most lost to God, which, you know, is exactly what you're saying is Luther's interpretation here. And that's the significance of the illustrative comparison that Jesus makes of himself to Jonah. And it all comes from the Apostle Paul. He who knew no sin was made to be sin so that in him we, we might become the righteousness of God. Well, and also the cry of dereliction at the end of Mark and, and that Matthew retains is the sense of being as, as lost to God as possible, you know, on the cross or in the belly of the whale. It's hard to see how God can uh, do, make anything good out of either of those situations. So, again, to pick up the theme that Jonah thinks he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord, the Lord, in his wrath and judgment, pursues Jonah onto the ocean and whipping up a great storm. And now Jonah is cast into the deep, whether it's in the deep or in the belly of the fish. Either way, it's a place that figures utter, as the psalm that Jonah prays indicates, it, it indicates utter separation from God. And yet there he cries out to the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, and his prayer is heard so that somehow God's presence is even in the place where God is not supposed to be present. Right. So it's kind of, as you said, starting with the, the defiance of the idea of the Lord God of Israel being a local God on earth. No, God is the God of all the earth because he made it. But then God, it turns out, extends even to unearthly locations, this um, spiritual or demonic separation. Uh, demonic is probably not the right word here, but hellacious separation from God. Uh, God extends even that far as well. Very good. So hyper-omnipresence. No wonder Luther liked it so much. <laughs> All right. Well, let me take us now into chapter three. So uh, Jonah is spitting sand out of his mouth. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So the call is renewed. It's not just now he knows he should get up and do it. But the word of the Lord comes to him a second time saying, All right, once again, let's start over. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and do that I tell you. So Jonah went, arose and went to Nineveh, which would, must have been, like I said, a very long walk. And then he gets to Nineveh, and it is an exceedingly great city. It takes three days' journey to walk it end to end. So Jonah goes into the city and says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That is all that we are given of Jonah's preaching. He doesn't even say, uh, you know, in, in that line, who is sending this message. And you'll notice that it is it is put in the form of an absolute certainty. There's no like conditional, like unless you repent and change your ways, then it will be overthrown. But simply 40 days and none of us shall be overthrown. And amazingly enough, this 
a dusty foreigner walks into town and all the people of Nineveh believe him. I, in my sermon, I surmised that they must have all had a pretty bad conscience. <laughs> there was something, <laughs> something in them waiting to be called to account, and it was almost a relief. I mean, I'm sure you and I have both experienced this and seen it and others, that when you finally get caught out in your evil ways, it can be just such a blessed relief. You don't have to lie and pretend anymore. So they they call for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. The king hears about it. He does the same. He makes an order that even the the herd animals should be dressed in sackcloth and they should fast as well. I mean, again, the, the, the comedy of it is very rich here. So truly the greatest to the least, they all repent and fast. But they are not Israelites. They have no history with this God. So they can only, they can only put mercy conditionally. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Um, they are have much less confidence in this respect than Jonah does, but they actually obey the charge, unlike Jonah. And then, indeed, the story ends, or this chapter ends with, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Yeah, boy, there are some really fun and interesting theological questions that are raised in here. Uh, we should point out that there, there's a pun on this uh, oracle, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The Hebrew word here, overthrown, is used in a different... Um, 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 Aspect? Aspect. Thank you. I was going to say conjugation, but I know that's Latin, Greek, not uh, not Hebrew, a different aspect. And it so it, it can it's kind of a play on words. It can mean overthrown. It's the same word that's used in Genesis to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah being overthrown in the sense of being destroyed. But in a different aspect, it can mean to be transformed or to be changed. And so without realizing what he's saying, the author has Jonah delivering an oracle that can be taken either to mean Sodom and Gomorrah's fate awaits Nineveh, or unlike Sodom and Gomorrah, the people of Nineveh will be transformed, be changed, and avert that fate. Oh, that's wonderful. I didn't know that. That is so great because, I mean, but it's it's so psychologically apt because when you do have to undergo a transformation, it is somehow an overthrowing of who you used to be. There is there is a death in the productive change that you undergo in life. So the pun is in, in Hebrew. It's beautiful. And it, oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's Augustine's idea of severe mercy that uh, that. Uh, the conversion to the Lord, true repentance, changing of heart and ways, is a, a painful reorganization of human affections. Uh, it doesn't happen easily because delivering us from our false loves, which are really some kinds of addictions uh, to false goods and so forth, uh, giving that up in exchange for an intangible spiritual good of the approval and blessing of God, uh, that does not come easily to human beings. Uh, severe mercy, Augustine calls it. The second thing I want to I want to remark about chapter three, 
When God saw what they did, they turned from their evil ways. God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, this is a really interesting theological problem. Can God change his mind? Can God repent? Well, we know that uh, the story of Noah is uh, uh, bracketed by two reports of God changing his mind. Uh, In the beginning of the story, when the Lord looks upon the wickedness of humanity, he was sorry that he had ever made man upon the earth. (laughs) And at the end of the story, the Lord is sorry that he brought this universal flood because the human beings are just never going to change their ways. And and it (laughs) did, did no good to wipe them all out with the flood because Noah and his sons sinned right away. So the Lord changes his mind. But in the book of Exodus, after the after the golden calf story, Exodus 32, 14, uh, these are all uh, from the Revised Standard Version. The Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do to his people. And then Jeremiah has the Lord saying something very similar, uh, 18.8. But if a nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. And at another moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I had intended to do it. Boy, that that Lord's pretty changeable. Yes, I mean, you know, yes, Amos 7, verse 3. The Lord repented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Thus the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, cease, I beseech thee. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord repented concerning this. This also shall not be, says the Lord. Uh, Interesting. And you could also cite here Hosea chapter 11. Uh, How can I give you up, O Jacob? How can I hand you over, O Ephraim? My heart recoils within me. Uh, I, I am God and not a jealous husband. I will not come to destroy. Uh, Now, so you have all these important passages representing, if I can use this term, the mutability of God, that God allows himself to be affected uh, by uh, human beings and changes his mind and his ways in response to them. In some ways, you have to think all Christian prayer kind of presumes upon this mutability of God that somehow the Lord of the universe invites us mere mortals to besiege him with our concerns and our promises, with the full expectation that our petitions are heard and that the Lord can alter the course of events in response to our prayers. Now, on the other hand, Sarah, there are other passages, maybe exactly in in, uh, tension with the ones I've just cited. 
For example, Numbers 23. Uh, this is Balaam speaking. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and he will not do it? Has he spoken, and he will not fulfill it? Uh, and again, we have in 1 Samuel 15, Also the glory of Israel will not lie or repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. So this is the kind of interesting theological tension that is surfacing here in the, uh, in the book of Jonah. Jonah is angry at the Lord for changing his mind, as if this was an ungodly way for God to behave. Well, and that's a very deep theme that uh, it's not just being wrestled with on the pages of the Old Testament. But of course, there's all sorts of offense taken in the Greek tradition that's trying to overcome the extremely changeable, you know, Greek gods of Olympus and all of their, you know, lesser ranked divinities and trying to work towards a more worthy conception of God, which culminates, you know, with Aristotle's unmoved mover. And then that's right. something that's wrestled with all through Western civilization trying to figure out how to make sense of these passages throughout the scripture. Um, and, and of course, you know, with the Enlightenment, that kind of takes it up a new level because it wants consistent lawful behavior that can be tested and measured and assessed and counted on to be reliable. I think you even see it in the kind of most egregious forms of prosperity gospel and you know, like the the laws of attraction and all these kind of creepy, um, you know, uh, positive thinking cults that sometimes manifest in so-called Christian churches, too, which are, you know, like Christianity is a contract. If you do your part, God does his part, you know, because two plus two equals four. And it's a very right. um, mechanical and legalistic understanding of God's behavior. So, I mean, I, I, I'm sure you'll take us back to the, the deep kind of um, ontological, theological questions here. But I think it's important to see that there is a, a spiritual correlate to this question, which is that a God that cannot change is a God that can be manipulated like a variable in an experiment or something that can um, be extorted to produce the desired effect over and over again. So for the sake of um, it, let's say for the sake of mutable human beings who are sinners living in history, they have to have, we have to have a God who is changeable in response or else he becomes simply another um, piece of data in the set or another machine in our toolkit that we control. So I would say from a, a spiritual point of view, it has to be true that God can change. But I'd like to hear you say now about from God's point of view, why God needs to change. Yeah, I think the most helpful discussion of this comes from the first volume of Catherine Zondereger's Systematic Theology, where she has an extended discussion of the uh, Balaam stories in the book of Numbers. That's about Numbers 22 to 24, something like that. And she contrasts Balaam's uh, affirmation of God's immutability, which I quoted earlier. Is God not... God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should repent. That's Balaam. Balaam insists upon the immutability of God. And Zondereger then contrasts this with Moses' prayer of intercession uh, for the sake of sinful Israel after the 
golden, uh, no, in it's the uh, worship of Baal at Peor, I think, uh, that she discusses. Uh, and and Zonderberger points out that both Balaam and Moses are right. How can you reconcile mutability and immutability? And she says in her reading of Israel's testimony here in Numbers, the book of Numbers, uh, that it presumes God's immutable or mutable immutability. I mean, it's a paradoxical, paradoxical expression, mutable immutability. Now, what is that? How do you unpack that so it's not a contradiction? First, God is faithful to his own purposes of good for creatures. In a history which empowers engaged creatures to play their own parts in that history, and in this specifically defined way, also to affect God. So, immutable, God is faithful, constant in his purposes of good for creatures, uh, and that immutability of God empowers creatures in turn in the uh, changes and chances of life uh, to besiege God with their needs, their problems, their prayers, and in that specifically defined way to address God, to influence God, uh, uh, to um, occasion God's repenting of the catastrophe that he had willed to work upon a sinful people, for example, in our story. So Balaam according to Zonderegger, protects Moses from turning God into nothing more than a local tribal deity on the one side. And Moses protects Balaam from removing God from the always local embodied concerns of creatures on the other. And that she puts these two ideas together, uh, these two uh, attributions of mutability and immutability in that way, much like the Tetragrammaton that we talked about some episodes ago. Uh, the Tetragrammaton is both a personal name that can be captured and misused if it's nothing but a local deity, but at the same time it declares uh, its uncapturability. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it eludes human comprehension and says you have to follow and see what kind of a God I am to understand me. I, I, I really like that because once again, it makes the the narrative taking place in history to be the, the source and wellspring from which we then can extract it for the sake of better understanding what it means to talk about these two aspects. But I like that the, the story is the source. And then we can look over the patterns of, of the many stories to see this doctrinal extraction of the mutability and the, immu and the immutability and how they play out in fellowship and conversation with sinful yet believing human beings to... Um, come to some deeper understanding of, how, of what God is all about. Yeah, and it, according to Robert Jensen's reading of the Nicene Creed and the Trinitarian faith, the second person of the Trinity is Jesus. <laughs> that human creature, Jesus, is the second person of, of the Trinity. And that means that God and God's own eternal life includes this capacity— for creatureliness, for history, for relationship, and so forth. 
Yeah, I think that's good too because it also addresses, like I said, the 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 Greek anxiety of trying to get past the extreme mutability of of Zeus and Athena and uh, all of all of that pack of of miscreants. <laughs> right, which is pure caprice. Right, but the because it's not fundamentally a story of faithfulness, but the solution that the philosophers come up with goes so far to the other extreme that finally you have a. a, a non-involvement. There's, there's no true fellowship or relationality between God and creatures. I mean, that's not even a, a particularly apt description of how Greeks looked at those things. Absolutely. The tendency is to dehistoricize and depersonalize God utterly. Right. Yeah. All right. Should we go into the last chapter then? Sure. So the story should have ended at chapter three <laughs> with success and joy and the Ninevites preserved from their destruction. But it doesn't. It has one more tale to tell, um, which I don't, you know, I don't remember ever hearing before I actually, I think, got to my Hebrew class and, and read this. I don't think this gets a lot of airtime um, in, in churches. But um, Jonah is really, really, really mad. <laughs> You'd think someone who'd been through what he has said to have been through in this story would know better than to get so angry at God again. But he does anyway. And yet, um, as Luther is fascinated to point out, he praise to God. His anger is not such that he cuts off communication, but he just turns around and excuse, accuses the Lord and said, isn't this exactly what I said when I was at home, in my country, comfortable, living my ordinary life? This is why I didn't want to obey you. I went in the opposite direction because I know you are a gracious God and merciful. I, I just love like this tone of furious accusation against God for being gracious and merciful. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and you relent from disaster. So what did I have to go on this horrible trip for? So, okay, God, that's it. Just just kill me now. Can we just be done with this? I'm tired of running your bidding and you change your mind and nothing happens anyway. It's better for me to die than to live. It's just the most comical prayer. It's like the exact opposite of what a good religious person should say. And the Lord very calmly says back, do you do well to be angry? <laughs> You can just imagine him just turning his tail and stalking off now. So he goes east out of the city. It's probably kind of dry and deserty. He makes a booth for himself, sits in the shade, and just waits to see what would become of the city. Like, I love this thought that he's sitting there hoping that maybe God would change his mind again and actually destroy it this time. And then he would have like a front row seat to watch the, the lightning bolts crash down out of the sky and burn the city to a crisp. So then God decides to fool around with Jonah one last time. So he makes this little plant spring up and spread its its leafy branches over Jonah's head and give him some shade because, you know, it's very hot and dry there. And Jonah was glad because of the plant, exceedingly glad. But then the next day when it, the sun rises, God sends a worm and the worm attacks the plant. So it withers. And then there's a scorching east wind and the sun beats down and Jonah is so hot and dry. He's about ready to faint. And then again, Jonah renews his prayer, please just kill me now. I'd rather die than live. And God says to Jonah, do you do well to be so angry about the plant? You know, because the plant was giving him shade and now he doesn't have it. And Jonah says like a petulant two-year-old, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. <laughs> He's just such a toddler. And the Lord says, you pity the plant 
for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And now here is God's punchline to the story. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And that's where the story ends. It ends with the cows. The cows have the last word. I just think that's so hilarious. <laughs> I mean, even if you don't care about Ninevites because they're what sinners and Gentiles, I mean, cows, really? You're going to let the cows die? So that's how our story ends. <laughs> so go ahead. You start with your comments. Uh, I, I, Sir, I can add nothing to what you just, that was such a comical and funny uh, uh, rereading of chapter four. Thank you very much. That's delightful. <laughs> but I mean, it, it's, I, I think actually, uh, you know, as you've, you've talked about the, the satire of the prophets and indeed, I think this also speaks to the mutability of God in favor of mercy. It's so interesting that what it's capturing here is this frustration and exasperation, even with God's ongoing mercy, like, Lord, why do you let this human project keep Keep going? Why do you let people keep acting this way? And why are you continually merciful? And if you're continually merciful, why should I ever exert myself? You know, like, why go be, you know, a missionary when, you know, you're going to save people anyway, regardless of what I do? I mean, God, I hope that's true. So um, it, it's just, it's, it's capturing this, um, disgruntled voice within a people who know God's grace and mercy, which I think um, is still kind of scandalous and uncomfortable to talk about now. Yeah, I think that 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 you're right, that sometimes prophets, self-proclaimed prophets, people who think that they are uh, engaging in something like biblical prophecy, uh, actually find in this role a pretext for their own anger. And uh, it's all about calling down wrath upon those who are politically incorrect or culturally incorrect or simply other and alien and so forth and so on. Um, whether they're illegal immigrants or whether they are uh, cops who kill innocent uh, or unarmed, rather, uh, people of color, uh, the self-proclaimed prophets uh, are those who are finding in religion a pretext for their own anger. And um, then they wonder why uh, the righteous indignation with which they give voice uh, to the sins of the world, many manifest obvious and painful, do not elicit from God the Sodom and Gomorrah response. And they actually, like Jonah, become resentful uh, that God should, uh, uh, his anger should last for a moment, but his chesed, his loving kindness, his mercy, covenant faithfulness endure forever. I think that's one of the interesting critiques prophets self-proclaimed uh, that is coming through this, uh, this text. Uh, even though Jonah has fled the commission, when he finally obeys it, he's still expecting to 
to see certain kinds of uh, results, you know, destruction of the city of Nineveh. And when, you know, like you so comically put it, I knew it, I knew it, I knew you were going to change your mind, I knew this was just a big waste of my time because you're merciful, doggone it. (laughs) And I invested all this in, in, in bringing the hammer down, theologizing with a hammer on those sinful, <laughs> deplorable Ninevites. And you, in fact, caused their conversion and averted the disaster. Ah, you know, uh, I, think, I think something like that is, is being satirized here in this, in this uh, story. And what does it mean for us? Um, I think one of the th- good ways Luther understood these things was that the wrath of God is the alien form of his love. Let me say that again. The wrath of God is the alien form of his love. The wrath is real. Love is against what is against love. And that means confrontation. That means uh, judgment. That means, in many cases, delivering the consequences of sin upon the sinner. Uh, and so forth. Um, But the testimony of Scripture is that this lasts but for a moment because hidden in the anger of God, the wrath of God, is his love. And that leads us to the great question of Athanasius. What was God in his goodness to do? If God neglected to judge the wickedness and the sin, he would let the ruin of the creation proceed apace uh, without intervention or interference. But if God executed his wrath upon the sinners, that too would be the ruin of the creation. Either way, ignoring sin or punishing sinners leads to the destruction of the creation. And the book of Jonah is telling us in the end that God in his goodness does not want to destroy. The Lord desires not the death of the sinner. Seriously desires not the death of the sinner and seriously cares about the 120,000 persons of Nineveh who are ignorant. They don't know their right hand from their left and also then like the dumb cows that they own, nevertheless precious lives worth 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 as god's good creation worth redeeming yeah that's that's really great and um i i forgot to mention the the death of jonah in chapter three and chapter four but it, it goes right to this point because in chapter three Jonah does die to his own will after what he's gone through with the storm and the whale and everything. He does finally give up his own claim on his life and goes to proclaim. But then, I mean, the ironic twist here is in chapter four is that he is is reborn to his own will, which is a form of spiritual death. He does not want his... um, pride to die. And so once again, he dies to God's purposes. And, you know, in a sense, he's proclaiming himself an enemy of God's graciousness and mercy by saying, just kill me. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. And um, I I think that's really striking. What what Luther makes of it is that there is... um, there's basically a difference between sinning against the law and sinning against 
grace. And what we see again and again throughout scripture is that God takes his law very seriously and does not want it broken because that is the destruction of the good human and a whole world's creation, but he will forgive it and he will restore it. But what happens when you sin against the restorative grace, the grace that comes to you that tries to make things better and uh, overthrows you in order to transform you? And for Luther, that's he actually directly identifies that with the sin against the Holy Spirit and says it's it's resisting the only thing that could make you better. I mean, that where else do you go from there? And so what he he sees in Jonah at the end is this kind of um, I think maybe I'm I'm importing this, but he you know this sort of rage against grace is different from rage against the law or even disobedience to the law. Um, for all that, Luther will still identify uh, Jonah in Hebrew means dove, so he says that Jonah is nevertheless an icon of the Holy Spirit who goes down to the depths, goes out to the Gentiles, and gathers them in and affects transformation. So Jonah is again and again forced to be an icon of God's grace, totally against his own will. Isn't that kind? of how grace works anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That's why it's such a good story. I, I guess I just want to finish out because you talked about their um, the self-appointed prophet. So let us confess, Dad, that you and I have on more than one occasion felt ourselves entitled to inveigh against the many and various sins of the world and of the church and um, others who cross the path of our ire. And uh, just Jonah's dilemma is the prophet's dilemma, which is that if you warn successfully and people listen to your warning and change your ways, then in fact, it invalidates the warning in the first place and raises right. the question, well, maybe there was never a threat in the first place. So this is called the prophet's dilemma. It's also called the self-defeating prophecy as opposed to the self-fulfilling prophecy. So basically the idea like... um you hear like um, in climate change, suppose that uh, the alarm is successfully raised climate change, the earth is going to heat up, blah, blah, blah. So everybody gets on board, changes their ways, reduces the carbon emissions, whatever. And then climate change doesn't happen. So does that mean there was never actually a threat of climate change in the first place or that people took the warning and changed? And there's absolutely no way to prove it in a way that's accessible to proof, because by definition, history only has one one go. You cannot run a double-blind trial on history and find out which one was right. <laughs> but yep. I think this, and and then on the flip side, I've heard of um, so many critiques of of people who prophesy not in religious matters, but like say making political or economic predictions that people then act on, that then can create or not create realities, and then who is held accountable for their prophecies. Um, I've even heard proposals for things like prediction markets that would force people who are going to go out in public and say, this is going to happen to like invest some money on its outcome in order to hold them accountable for the actual real life impact that might come out of what they say. So I, this is an enormous thorny problem and obviously it's irresolvable in a one unidirectional history. But um, I just thought it might be interesting for, for you and me to reflect on um, our own dabblings in the, the prophetic and um, what actually is the purpose of theologians and pastors and, and any Christian believer in making a warning and how can we 
test or restrain those warnings as well as the reactions to them in a way that is fruitful for the gospel and not ultimately damaging. Yeah, I think that neither you or I or anybody else in our positions has had the word of the Lord come to them the way it came to the Hebrew prophets. Our prophecy, such as it is, is highly derivative. It's based upon absorbing the uh, scriptural testimony to prophecy. And then uh, in our finite and sinful uh, human ways, uh, trying to articulate that biblical message to our own con- uh, time and place. Um, so I, I cannot say about any such uh, 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 rhetoric of righteous indignation of my own, thus says the Lord. What I, ha- what I have to say is something much more uh, uh, modulated. Uh, here is what Scripture attests. Here are the reasons, scripture, scriptural reasons I have for feeling, feeling or sensing f- something fearful here something that the nation or the church is doing wrong that will bring down divine judgment on the pattern of the scriptures. Uh, But I am making this application with my own limited vision and my own blindness to my own sinful uh, uh, egotism. Uh, Nevertheless, I'll venture this judgment. uh, And I will have to say with humility... This is so it seems to me, and I hope I'm wrong. So it seems to me, and I hope I'm wrong. Um, so I have, you know, spent a career, uh, uh, as you <laughs> graciously pointed out, railing against <laughs> the sins of the nation and the sins of the church, right? But I, I think I've always tried to say, so it seems to me. I am not a prophet, I'm a theologian. That's of a lower order. Okay, I think that that concluding, I hope I'm wrong. I think that's that's probably the hardest part for the um, for the person possessed by righteous anger to say in a way that convinces the audience. I think that would be the the sort of internal test is would I rather be right and see destruction happen because it means that I was correct about this, um, or would I rather take the hit to my my ego and my knowledge? Um, whether because God is merciful or because simply my assessment was incorrect, a lot of a lot of spiritual deaths here. <laughs> that's right, and that that's right, and you know this. I just noticed on my synod's uh, website there was a discussion uh, among pastors. So you've been accused of preaching politics again. And that was the theme for this discussion, and. Very little did I see any acknowledgement of my own finite perspective, my own limited vision, let alone my own sinful egotism, and how these might factor into my preaching the wrath of God or the judgment of God against this, that, or the other political sin as I see things. You know, I've said to parishioners over the years, I have a lot of political opinions. Would you like me to preach about them? (laughs) No, no, thank you, Pastor. You know, and I think this really goes to something very important that Luther said about this. 
Uh, pastors are not God's cops. Preachers and theologians are not capable of making it happen. Only God does that. Uh, where in the Augsburg Confession, uh, where and when it pleases God. Uh, so even our most powerful preaching is not, this is kind of my problem with the performative theory of language stuff that some Lutheran theology, theologians are into, as if the language were doing this kind of automatically. Uh, I think language sh should intend to be powerful and persuasive, but that it actually is powerful and persuasive is utterly in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And if you think you can rig your preaching in such a way to produce particular political results, my God, what a, what a dangerous path, path I think that you're on. So what Luther said was, look it, my duty as a preacher is to preach the will of God according to Scripture and lay it on the conscience of my auditors. And that's it. That's the limit. That's as far as I can go. Uh, what you do with the preaching that I deliver to you is on your conscience. You have to stand before God and justify your behavior in the light of the preaching of his word. It's not for me to make to transgress that boundary and bind the consciences of others. I would just say what's become clear to me evermore in my ministry here is people are dying for want of encouragement. There are so many voices of accusation out there. And, you know, the chances of you're getting a real psychopath who has no conscience in your congregation, I mean, it can happen, but it's pretty small. I think chances are most people really need to just be told, you know, here's what sin is like, you know, you got it, but here's the gracious God, you know, Take some strength from the Lord and, and go forth. People need encouragement more than anything else. Well, I think that's right. I think despair runs just under the surface of our officially optimistic societies. Yep. Right. All right. Well, that was really fun. And so next time on the show, we are going to be talking again about faith, but just faith. Faith alone? Faith, maybe faith alone. <laughs> talking about faith alone. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.